Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Peter Oborn about his new book, The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. Peter's book is as much a history of U.S., British, and French relations with Islam as it is about a relationship that was almost doomed from the outset, not because of inherent problems with either the essence of the West or the essence of Islam, but because of prejudice, bias, and certainly in the 21st century, politicization and weaponization of religion on both sides of the divide. As we will see, many of the Western and non-Western policy assumptions about Islam echo past fears and prejudices and debates that have fueled a widening gap and Islamophobia. Peter Oborn, Welcome to the show. It's a real privilege, James. It's a pleasure to have you. Coming to write this book was a journey, given that it involved moving away, for you, moving away from the precepts of a military family and an elite private school education that initially steered you towards conservative media and conservative politics. To be fair, attitudes towards Islam as discussed in your book were not the only thing that persuaded you to take a step back. Ultimately, if I'm not incorrect, you left the Daily Telegraph because of its reporting about HSBC and tax dodging, rather than its stance on Islam. So tell us about the journey that you made. I thought it was very important at the uh, start of the book to explain why I was writing it, which is why I dwelt for a little bit on my kind of establishment credentials. <laughs> As you say, I come from a military family, went to um, Cambridge University um, and one of Britain's, um, pub, what we call public schools in Britain, actually private schools, of course, and and very much brought up in the sort of British military uh, political establishment. Um, by the way, I don't think I've been myself on an intellectual journey. I think I'm the same conservative that I always have been. One of the big theses about this book is that it's conservatism which has gone on a journey. You uh, not uh, not, and that exploit neoconservatism has captured a political and intellectual discourse first in the United States and now in in Britain. Uh, and actually is a departure from the sort of conservatism which I believed in and still do. But nevertheless, uh, it got, this journey uh, took me into journalism uh, and in due course to The Spectator, which is the sort of... which uh, where, When Boris Johnson, who's now British Prime Minister, was the editor and I was the political uh, correspondent, and we uh, we had a very sort of liberal... We were a liberal conservative paper. Boris Johnson wasn't the 
quite sinister creature he has become as British Prime Minister at all. He was a sort of optimistic, jolly, multicultural, highly intelligent and gifted writer. Um, and we um, engage, we saw ourselves as a sort of, I think Boris used this phrase actually, uh, we're a journal of manners more than a journal of politics. Um, and this, the, 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 all the terrible things, and I think terrible is becoming the right word in Britain now, um, that all came later. It was a very eclectic a paper at the time, representing Burkean, if it represented any conservatism, it was Burkean conservatism, a generous conservatism, a conservatism which understood that Britishness embraces all sorts of different identities. You can be British and Scottish, British and, and British and Scottish and advocate for Scottish independence. You can be, uh, you know, there's a wonderful rich heritage of, of immigrants coming for, mille for millennia, you know, just think of that fabulous generation of, of Jewish emigres to Britain fleeing Nazi Germany uh, before and after World War II and so on. So it's it's a very complex identity, Britishness, but it gives allows everyone to have a home within it. And that, of course, includes Muslims. That was the kind of, uh, that's, what, that's what I thought, that's what the Conservative Party, to a very large extent, was when I started to report politics. Uh, but uh, and I now move on to why I came to write the book. Uh, after at the time of nine eleven, and then the Iraq Iraq War, and then the uh, atrocity of seven seven in in London, the bombings. Uh, at the same time, there was a sort of almost militant misreporting of of Muslim issues of and of, and of Islam. And I, it was it, it, it distorted the truth, and I didn't like it. It was it it was the opposite of wise. It was shrill, and it was an attack on a minority. And that's another reason why I emphasise my conservative background is because I believe in sticking up for minorities. I believe in sticking up for the underdog. That's a deep thing in Britain for me, and part of my what I understand Britishness to be. Thank you. Uh, I mean, that all of that comes indeed very clearly out in the book. And if we start turning to the book, perhaps we can start with looking at the history of British and French's, French approaches towards Islam and its place in society and, and in the country. And those approaches were very different. In its colonial days, Britain still envisioned a multicultural empire, while France sought to make its colonies French, nowhere more so than in Algeria. How much of that is the result of very different encounters with Islam from the outset? And how does that impact domestic politics differently until today in Britain and France? It's such a, an interesting question. If you look at the uh, French experience, it starts with the it starts with Napoleon. Well, you can, you can take it, of course, back. And I think it's rather important to do this, actually, to the victory over the um, Muslims, the Muslim armies at, uh, in 1732, Charles Martel. And that is part of the French national myth now, taught in schools. Uh, and indeed, Gibbon wrote about, says that if, if that victory hadn't happened, 
that <laughs> you know that the, was it the call to prayer would be held uh, in Oxford colleges, etc. But I, I, I um, in modern in modern times, reinforced by that important myth, um, we have uh, we we kick off with Napoleon, so sort of um, a farcical journey in some ways to uh, to Egypt. Um, total disaster but because napoleon was a master of propaganda he converted it into a great success it was a very early uh, enterprise in liberal imperialism he brought with him all sorts of scholars um and actually he engaged in a much richer way with the with the local local traditions than uh, the next Enterprise, which was 1830, the invasion of Algeria, which uh, was a terrible event and inaugurated an era of settler colonialism. Um, uh, and really, it was the seizure of land. When the European empires seize land, that opens the way to genocide and ethnic cleansing. Uh, as it did in the uh, Midwest, United States with the native Indians, uh, very much of the French, British and Ireland at an earlier point in our history. Um, and the, the local Muslim population was really offered the choice between surrendering their Muslim identity and becoming French or being treated as barbarians. Now, if you, um, and um, there was a sort of, Awful massacres uh, and um, the emergence of a, of a local settler, French settler population. Now, the which uh, had dark consequences for the uh, for the, for the, for, for modern France as well. Britain starts kicks off in a rather different way. I mean, our great Queen Elizabeth the First, who I think is even greater than Queen Elizabeth the Second, and that's saying an awful lot. Um, she uh, was very. She needed to create a foreign policy and a trading strategy which cut out Catholic Europe, which was then an existential enemy of hers. They were trying to kill her and um, impose a Catholic queen as cousin and Mary. And the um, uh, and so she formed these early allegiance alliances, fascinating alliances, flirtatious letters of Solomon the Magnificent, and sort of building up. Um, the building a, 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 a building up relationships with Muslim powers, um, both in North Africa uh, and 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 in Turkey and beyond. You you find Britain's going to Aleppo at quite an early stage. So, and this is a trading relationship which carries on defining an awful lot of what. Britain was doing, even when Britain started to, uh, rather without meaning to acquire an empire, it didn't uh, didn't seize the land. It, it, it formed, it, it governed it indirectly or uh, through minorities often. But it, this meant that um, it, it was perfectly happy, as a general rule, there were exceptions to um, to work with the local. Communities with the local, uh, the, the, the local religions, not to impose impose themselves, whereas the French 
were, you know, you, that you were expected to embrace French values and become French. Um, and that is one of the reasons when Britain surrendered her empire in the uh, second half of the 20th century, as a general rule, uh, it was much more relaxed business. Um, uh, and of course, there were terrible things happened. Think of partition but it, in, in India, but it was a more, whereas in France, they fought these, 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 these Algeria fought, fought that terrible war of, of independence, which has a massive uh, la, uh, legacy in, in France today because the settler population of Algeria, which eventually, which fought against independence and then came to France and is a sort of the source of Marine Le Pen's, far, you know, and her father's, you know, it's, it's a source of a lot of the far right in France now, as and likewise the the Muslims, the Muslim population of Algeria, a lot of whom were obliged to come to France to seek jobs, uh, and they are the basis of uh, that. Um, uh, also, come from Algeria, and it's and they bring with them their own legacy. And awful things have happened on the French mainland uh, as well as in Algeria. There was that. Uh, so it's very. Um, it's a very dark legacy, much more benign in Britain. So the multiculturalism of the British Empire came to Britain at the, after World War II. Communities, not just Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, came to Britain, particularly from the uh, South Asia, and established themselves in this country. And it's an immigration, in my view, has not, it, it, as a whole, and multiculturalism has been a great success in Britain. In many ways, that sort of anti-Muslim sentiment, if you wish, was accelerated, obviously, by 9-11 and was sharpened when Islam sort of succeeded communism as the enemy. Um, it also led to a redefinition or a definition of what, or an expansion of what a bad Muslim constitutes. Uh, interestingly enough, you in, in the book also tr trace the notion of a bad Muslim as going back to Aladdin, the, uh, the Middle Eastern folktale figure. Perhaps you can draw that sort of history of the notion of a bad Muslim and tell us in what ways and with what consequences it, the definition of the bad Muslim expanded post 9-11. Yes. Um, if, you, if you look at the back end of the British um, Empire in India, the British governing class did pursue a strategy of divide and rule. And uh, there were good Muslims, were those Muslims who, and indeed good, good local, good Hindus too, uh, who accommodated themselves to British rule. Uh, bad ones were those who, um, uh, who, who tried to get rid of the British. And they were respectively... Um, the, most, the moderates were the good ones, and extremists were the bad ones. They were extreme. And I, I, I did a. I, thought, I was so interested in this word extremist because it's now become a, 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 a scare word about Muslims generally. But I did a search for it, uh, of the use of it in the House of Commons, uh, Hansard of parliamentary debates. The first one time you came across this uh, term was used by Viscount Hemsley, a 
tragically died. If we're talking, in, I think, 1912, he died on the Western Front five or six years, five years later. But he he, he stood up and said extremists, these, these women who wanted the vote, which he disapproved of, he said these were extremists who, who wanted to have the vote against moderate women who realised their place in society. Now, obviously, that... Nowadays, if you said uh, that, that women who wanted to vote were extremists, it would be an extremist thing to say that they shouldn't have it. Then it's next used, uh, uh, next use I find of the term extremist, about those who wanted a Indian independence. And again, I'd say it's moderate, moderate, uh, moderate Indians were, were those who would like to work in harmony with the Brits, whereas the extremists uh, didn't. Now, what it's so interesting that we have had both in the United States and in France, but particularly in Britain, I think, the creation of a new public language to dis- to determine and define and categorize uh, Muslims. So the first one is moderate versus extremists. A moderate Muslim in Britain today, according to the official class, and I devote a lot of time to describing how this new language was created, is one who is happy essentially to renounce his or her Muslim identity, um, a liberal Muslim, um, whereas an extremist Muslim is one who persists in um, in in, uh, in being a Muslim in, in, in an external sense. Maybe it's clothes, maybe it's uh, beliefs about um, sticking to the teaching of Islam, and or criticizing uh, British or American uh, foreign policy. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, it's it's very interesting the way in which. Sorry, I lost my way. Can you just slice that off? I'm just. Um, uh, yeah. Then we had the creation of another term. It's called nonviolent extremism, and this is a sinister term invented, uh, as far as I could tell, by think tanks, uh, creating a new policy towards Islam in the wake of 9-11. Now, nonviolent extremism, uh, it's clearly a scare word, extremism, but it's somebody who doesn't want to, nonviolent, uh, is, um, they're not committing any crime, they're just holding opinions which are held, uh, which are thought to be unsatisfactory or dangerous and puts you on an escalator towards violence. And that process of moving towards violence is called radicalization in the pseudoscientific literature which was produced by think tanks and within Whitehall and in government. Uh, in order to define this journey which allegedly uh, Muslims go on if they start to you know, they, if they start to become rather too religious, pray five times a day, start to sh- t- turn it, show an interest in going to mosques, uh, possibly look at, um, adopt, get to get, get excited about the cause of the Palestinians, etc. Uh, and so this is a kind, this has emerged, and it's frightening to me. It's very profoundly un-British, and that is forked crime. 
and you can be get punished and isolated, not punished in the sense of going to jail, but punished in the sense of cut out of the public square, put on lists and so forth for advocating that sort of opinion. They also invented, and this is something called British values. Um, uh, this has become a, part of, a major part of the official government analysis of Muslims. If you, you, if you adopt British values, um, you're a good person, a good Muslim. If you're against British values, you're an extremist. Now, I, if you look at the definition of British values, it says things like tolerance, you support tolerance, freedom, free speech, etc. Uh, and there's nothing actually specifically, first thing to say, there's nothing specifically uh, British about this. I mean, the, you know, all sorts of people around the world, countries support these things. Uh, and also um, something very un-British about the idea of British values. Nobody has ever, um, uh, you know, th these are all ideas which... Um, <laughs> I'll start again. Um, there's something very un-British about the idea of British values because Britain has always been such a generous place. You don't, it doesn't demand that you think in a certain way in order to be British. What you're talking about here is values of coercive liberalism because these are values which, you, which, are, which are incompatible with unorthodox beliefs particularly religious beliefs in a secular society. So they are, although it doesn't, the legislation and the way they're used doesn't say, especially that, they, that, that Muslims don't abide by them, it's quite clear from the underlying usage of the term that the, it, this, this is aimed at, aimed at Muslims who don't adhere to British values. So it's a word, a term which has been constructed to, to pillory or to isolate a, a significant minority of my our fellow citizens. Um, and I think it's an extremely troubling usage. Um, it's also, ironically, and it, it's, it's so applied in such an invidious way. For instance, the two out of the last three British prime ministers went to a school called Eton, which does not permit women. Now, that is in clear infringement of the tolerance uh, embedded in the concept of British values, but nobody will ever accuse David Cameron or Boris Johnson of being un-British, or that matter, Eton. But if, for Muslims who, Muslim schools which maybe separate boys and girls in different halves of the class, this is a great infringement uh, against um, the British values. So it's, it's, it's used in a very selective way in order to, um, pillory a community and also it then becomes the basis for what we in Britain call have it's the prevent strategy which means that if you don't adhere to British values particularly at inside schools you're likely to be picked up and uh, put on a pro prevent the so-called prevent program suspected of becoming radical uh, and um Many Muslims feel, and I completely sympathise with them, that they are living in something increasingly like a police state. You, in the book, you, you, you just talked about the, the role of think tanks in, in this whole process. 
and in the book you uh, describe in some great great detail two of the of those think tanks. One is Kilian, the other is the Policy Exchange. Tell us why they you saw them as being so important. Yeah, first of all, I'll talk about Quilliam, which is important because in the aftermath of 9-11, intellectuals on both sides of the Atlantic um, created, looked back to the aftermath of World War II, very explicitly and deliberately looked back at the um, Cold War when we had... um, created a security architecture to fight communism, but also a an intelligence architecture. And the CIA um, wondered how to um, how to uh, combat use soft power to fight communism, and that was by creating a kind of a, a school of a, a kind of approved social de- democrat who was regarded as being uh, acceptable to the United States as against a, a sort of straightforward Soviet support. Um, in order to encourage these sort of soft communists, I call them, uh, enormous amount of resources in terms of propaganda and money and intelligence was devoting, devoted to creating a series of um, what appeared to be kind of legitimate civil civil society organisations, but were actually funded by the CIA. Uh, and the same thing happened in Britain. Um, the same kind of organisations were set up. Many writers and intellectuals um, all around the West and indeed the, the rest of the world were, were implicated in this. I, 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 I have my mixed feelings. It was secret and it involved deception. But equally, the Soviet Union was a genuine existential threat to the West. You can't say the same. And so they they went, and so when the Cold War ended, all these organisations were uh, closed down. But when, after 9-11, they were set up, the, the, the um, policymakers in Whitehall set up, re- looked back at what had been done at the start of the Cold War, and, and set up similar organisations. Now, Quilliam is one example, quite an important one. Uh, it was um, set, set up by two or three um, former Islamists. It's another Islamist is another manifestation of the new language. It's a sort of scare, term, scare word for Muslim, in my view. It doesn't have a lot of other meaning. Former Muslim, former um, Islamists, was was all sort of sponsored and given money by uh, the Home Office in in Britain to uh, to set up this organisation, which would preach another square word. Well, yeah, preach moderate Islam against extremism, um, and. Um, Part of the, the part of the way they inter- and I did some research. Part of the way they interpreted their job was to provide, get send a list of dangerous extremist Muslims to the Home Office, Muslims who, uh, or Muslim organisations who should be treated with suspicion and put on kind of secret blacklists. In effect, this takes us into a sort of McCarthyite world, uh, where 
Muslims who are politically active in a way which is deemed um, unhelpful by the British state suddenly are on lists and denied access to all sorts of things without even knowing about it. Whereas another category of good Muslims who are officially sponsored, given money uh, and given access to the public space, particularly organisations like the British BBC, they, they find themselves often on a very privileged uh, uh, forum, forums where they can put out the moderate Muslim uh, message. So you're trying to shape a Muslim identity which is approved of by the British state. Um, and um, anyway, Quilliam set eyes on this journey and it wasn't taken that seriously by the general Muslim population. And um, after a while, it's sort of Whitehall handlers uh, lost uh, faith in it. Uh, and it's, I chart its weird and wonderful course to the sort of uh, taking money instead from agenda-driven American foundations, uh, which, some of which had looked pretty far right to me. Uh, and really, um, you know, the, the, the organization, Quilliam was named after this rather wonderful Britain one of many, actually, who was enormous, so sympathetic to in the 19th century to Islam that he, Quilliam, converted and or reverted. And, uh, and uh, he, was, he, he was, had very radical views about foreign policy and he, uh, and he had a wonderfully and creative role, very interesting person. And I think he probably would have been rolling in his grave at some of the things which were d- done in his name by Quilliam point really about Quilliam is a lot of other organisations um, around the place which look pretty much as if they've come from civil society, are spontaneous sort of sort of organisations or which Habermas would recognise as being part of the public space, which are actually funded by, um, by the British government and are not exactly what they seem. A lot of this played out in, or was graphically illustrated, perhaps. Uh, oh, or before we go into that, um, talk a little bit about policy exchange, if you will. Yeah, policy exchange is exceptionally interesting because more than any other organization, I think it has been extremely um, uh, successful in creating the... Um, the government, the government view towards Muslims in Britain. Um, I, I, uh, I look. I did. There was a battle inside the Conservative Party uh, at the start of the twenty first century um, about the, uh, how to approach Muslims. On the one hand, there was a rather brilliant, I think, charismatic um, Saeed Avasi. Uh, who is a young conservative politician at the time, really concerned about issues to do with Palestine. She eventually resi- re- resigned about over the um, British government the sort of failure to condemn the attack on Gaza in 2014. But she, she represented a very optimistic interpretation of what Muslims could do in British life. They're hardworking, they're very family-minded, they've got very much conservative values, and it's up to the British government to to, to, to engage. Whereas um, there was an alternative uh, uh, strategy, which essentially were that Islam 
or Islamism as it was called, posed an existential threat to the West. Uh, and that, the, 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 the kind of architect of that, or the figurehead for it, was another conservative politician, Michael Gove, who uh, is now a senior cabinet minister in the Johnson government, a real, very close to Rupert Murdoch, because he worked for the Times newspaper for a long time. And he was the chairman, founding chairman from memory of Policy Exchange, which is a think tank. And I looked at the publications of Policy Exchange um, in the first 10 years of the this century. And basically, they sketch out the uh, the policy, they set out the policies which uh, have defined, which have defined British Muslims for the last 20 years. And that is that Islamism is an existential threat uh, to the West. There are two types of Muslims. There's the ones who, um, the moderates, and these, then there are the Islamists who must not actually be allowed, must be isolated, never embraced, uh, and regarded as subversive. And that is what has happened. Um, and it is, I, I, um, it is interesting to read how they set out these, uh, these papers. Um, they, in particular, what they wanted to do was to reject the um, counter-terrorism strategy which the British had applied in Northern Ireland which was simply, and the British I think emerged with great honour from that tragic um, tragic conflict in Northern Ireland in which all sides were to blame And but the British state I think managed it as fairly well and the what they, they, they were while they accepted all along that violence, violent acts must be punished. Uh, they, they, didn't, they, they also said that subversion, i.e. belief in Irish independence, was not a crime. Was nothing, was not a, you know, that was not something that the Brits were going to get worried about, so-called subversion. And they want, policy exchange wanted the reintroduction uh, of the idea of subversion when it came to uh, to Muslims, and that is, I think, that what has happened. If you have views which the state doesn't like, you are now re you're regarded as somebody who should be investigated. In other words, there is a set of our fellow citizens in this country now who are regarded as subversive simply because of the views which they hold. Now that is. For me, as a British citizen, as, a, as I set out at the beginning of this chat, as a conservative British citizen with an understanding of what it means to be British, this is an outrageous thing to allow to happen. If you think about the way his, our history, and I think I'm very proud to be British, has been made, you know, you think about the great radicals, uh, you know, in the, at the time of the French Revolution, who informed the working, the, the trade union movement, they were very subversive. They were absolutely against the state, but we must honour them. Think about Keir Hardy, 
uh, and the other great figures who formed the Labour Party and gave a voice in Parliament to the working classes, profoundly subversive. But these are people we must honour today and do honour. Likewise, the people who fought for Indian independence. Do we honour Gandhi? Yes, absolutely we honour Gandhi. He was regarded as a total subversive. The women, the, the incredibly brave women who fought for women's liberation, for the vote and all of that, they were so subversive. But we are, and, and so, but what we have done is put placed on. Uh, we have formed a special category of subversive but honourable, public-spirited Muslims who fight really for better. You know, fight, speak up for their community and their view of how the world should work. And I, um, of course, if they people who want to blow us up should be arrested, spied on. I don't, you know, it's got a bit, it's the job of the state to uh, to protect the security of its citizens more than anything else. But these are people who just have unorthodox views and are treated as subversive. It, it really upsets me. It's the major, it's the major moral driver of the book I've written. Yeah, the book is full of fascinating little facts, contradictions, analogies, um, and I want to touch on two of them. One of them, the first one is, you basically note that the British public didn't display a lot of interest in colonial affairs, certainly in the first part of the 20th century. But its rule over a large number of Muslims did impact debate and policies in Britain itself. And for example, uh, it was one argument that was used against lowering the voting age of women from 21 to 30. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I just found That's that. Colonel Aplin, isn't it? We discovered him speaking in Parliament. He was, I, th I think he was a fairly um, gruesome character, Colonel Aplin. But he's, he was, whether we're wanting to reduce the age of women from 30 to 21, he issued, he'd been a policeman in Borneo, hadn't he, actually? I guess. <laughs> he, he's getting this thunderous denunciation of the damage this would do to the um, 400 million Muslims or so who, who were under the British Empire. They wouldn't like it a bit. <laughs> and he gave this as a reason for not. It is interesting, though, isn't it, how, that, how the women question is emerging there and being framed by a, 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 an imperialist. I found that absolutely fascinating. I also did the compar uh, find fascinating the comparison that you drew uh, between the contemporary demonization of the Sharia and the demonization of coffee in the 16th century. <laughs> yes, the uh, coffee was yeah basically in, which was of course brought to the West by um, to Britain by. Muslims and was meant as meant to cause all sorts of immorality and uh, and um, of course feed into the demonization of Muslims as sort of irrational, lascivious, and so forth. Let's move for a moment to the United States, which obviously also play, uh, is a is a big part of your book, and perhaps we can start chronologically with the place of Islam and of black Muslim slaves in American slavery. First Muslims came to the US about 400 years ago as slaves. And yet until the 9-11 attacks, their influence on US politics and culture was marginal. There were no question that there were 
millions of Muslim slaves took part on, were part of that dreadful passage from Africa to um, the United States, what is now the United States in the 17th, 18th centuries, and many perished. And their stories are almost entirely unrecorded. But I tell you what I think is important, and I realised is the importance of the Holy Bible in the construction of the American national consciousness. You know, the Pilgrim Fathers, uh, until the night, uh, they believed really that they were, they were, they, they were, they, they saw themselves, didn't they, as the Jews entering the Promised Land, and they, they were the elect people, and this, this affected very deeply, I think, the way they saw the native Indians they they encountered. And this was this that this fed on into the way in which they eventually, when Americans met Muslims, first of all, in their first foreign war that against the Barbary pirates in the back end of the night, well, just after the uh, War of Independence, uh, when suddenly they, um, the American shipping didn't have the protection of the British Navy and they were subject to the Barbary pirates and they had to deal with them. Uh, and the Barbary Wars um, have been written up since and were seen at the time uh, as the clash of civilizations between these uh, barbaric savages, uh, i.e. Islam and, and, and the, the noble Christian religion and actually you can see that same narrative uh, emerge in the way the Barbary Wars were published so when, when the neocons really get going uh, launching a series of wars against Muslims in the at the start of the 20th 21st century uh, and and then the second after the Barbary Wars we then have another long period of silence uh, about Muslims <laughs> until these the Philippine war in the Philippines at the back of 1898. Now there's a substantial, although um, these this war was basically correct, created by the decaying remnants of the Spanish Empire, uh, which had owned the um, Philippines. But in the southern Philippines, there were the so-called Moros, who was a very ancient indigenous, well, indigenous since. Uh, you know, been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, well before the Spanish. The Moros have come there with Arab traders a thousand years earlier, and they, they occupied the southern islands. And the, when the Americans arrived, the, soldier, the soldiers had come from three decades of fighting the native Indians in the Midwest. And they'd seen the native Indians as uh, subhuman, uh, not part of the uh, sort of they weren't they weren't american citizens they were just savages to be to be to be killed at will treaties entered into them to be broken something like it james do we think it was a genocide of the native indians would you call it that i'm hesitant but it's just hesitant because i haven't looked at it that closely i mean yeah i mean something like and i and i and i also i also you know, I think there's a distinction between genocide and mass murder, or yeah, or, or mass, Let's call it mass murder. 
That's cool. And, and, and so I'm 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 very genocide. I'm very. Uh, I, well, let me put it differently. I think the word genocide is often too liberally used. I actually I I completely agree with you. So let's say mass murder, but lots and lots of barbarous atrocities, and certainly what they call you people call ethnic cleansing. Either lands were taken from them, and the Americans treated the Moros along those lines. They, they, they weren't recognized as being human beings, although one or two of them were brought back as exhibits in, uh, to, to, to the United States uh, at various fairs. Um, and so that is the, the, the relationship between the, between the United States and Islam or between, and Muslims for the first uh, you know, 200 years or 150 years uh, after, that, uh, after 1776. Um, you then do get uh, quite a lot of um, Muslim emigration from the uh, collapsing Ottoman Empire, from Syria and, and Lebanon. Uh, and those populations quickly abandon their Muslim uh, identity. Um, and then I think in the start of the post-war era, you have a quite a post-Second World War era, you have quite a benign relationship between the United States and Islam. It's a very happy period. And this is because the led by you know, Roosevelt onwards, American presidents realized the importance of oil. And so Saudi uh, Arabia suddenly becomes of enormous importance. Uh, and lots uh, and the the they, the Americans the United States takes over from the Britons as the power in the Middle East. Uh, lots and lots of uh, Muslims from these countries, Middle Eastern countries, flock to U.S. universities. Uh, among them, of course, Qutb, the great uh, uh, ideologist who inspired. What? Yes. Uh, I'll say that again. Among them, Saeed Qutb, who uh, went, was picked, I think, probably by the State Department to go to American University. He found he didn't like America. He was repelled by the commercialism, the consumerism he he saw, and then went back and um, and uh, was was the was the enemy of NASA, rotted in a in a cell for ten years, where he was eventually murdered by the Egyptian state, but wrote works which were inspirational for um, Al-Qaeda. Um, but that, that, that was a very happy period, that post-war period, in terms of the relationships. All the moving, you know, almost the last thing which Roosevelt did was to meet Ibn Saud, the ruler of, of Saudi Arabia, and, and form a new set of alliances. It's in the 70s, that uh, 1970s, you, events in Israel, Palestine, the, and of course the, the 1979 Iranian Revolution, where things start to go very sour indeed. Um, but I think that one of what, what Yes, uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit there. You'll cut me out a bit. Yeah. What the Americans did do, though, which caused huge problems for the future was set in motion a set of relationships with is islamic states 
which were fundamentally anti-democratic in nature. The uh, One of the most terrible events of the early post-war period was the CIA MI6 arranged coup d'etat against the um, Prime Minister Mossadegh in, in Iran because he started to take the um, unpopular view as far as the West was concerned that uh, Iranian oil should actually belong to the Iranians. And that led to the uh, removal of a democratically elected uh, leader of Iran who believed in all the values which we say we believe in, i.e. Um, <laughs> freedom, parliamentary democracy, rule of law, etc., and replace him with a, uh, a dictator, the Shah of Iran, who ruled for 30 years, yeah, you know, you, using American arms, secret police, total brutality, and opened, you know, to, and so naturally the Iranian people formed, started to form a um, an unhappy view of the America of, 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 of the United States, and this that that was part of a series of such relationship where America forms alliances with Saudi, the Gulf states, with with effectively despots uh, who absolutely crack down on any sign of freedom of speech, democratic activity, public gatherings. And we, we, we in Britain, we in the West, we above all the United States are on the sides of despotism against democracy across the Middle East. And the legacy of that is utterly terrible. And it has to be, it has to be said that this bears a serious responsibility, this systemic pattern of alliances with dictatorships for the rise of Al-Qaeda because the logic uh, of people who wanted to be democratic was that we should form parties, we should challenge uh, despotisms democratically, but if you did that, you became an enemy of the state. You also became an enemy of the West. You were deemed to be a terrorist. You were locked up. You were tortured. And Al-Qaeda, and, and nascent Al-Qaeda, as it emerged, says, look, you're, you're, the West will never tolerate democracy. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, and... Um, that has uh, provided an ideological justification for the terrible things which Al-Qaeda and ISIS have done. All of this, and then particularly 9-11, is brought forward in the, United, in the United States, but also elsewhere, a sort of a new whole crop of evangelical and atheist Islamophobic thinkers. Uh, talk to us a little bit about who they are and what impact they have. Yeah. It's when, after 9-11, the United States goes mad. I think that's the only, probably it always was mad. Um, you get a dialogue about Muslims, which is kind of off the scale crazy. Um it's a huge amount of money to be made by talking absolute nonsense about Islamophobia, about about Muslims. You can say whatever you like, you know, that, that they, they want to take over America, that they're um, they, they, they are evil, um, they're barbaric, and you will get a mass audience. What made it more dangerous was the 
several different forces came together to make this argument and were very, very powerfully effective when it came to US convincing US presidents. On the one hand, you had the Christian uh, evangelicals who uh, believed in an approaching end of the world. This has been an enduring uh, feature of United States history, dating right back <laughs> to the to the founding fathers. But it really got going uh, in the middle of the nineteenth century. This eschatological, this millenarian eschatology, whereby um, at some point uh, Christ comes back or the Messiah, and then you get the Antichrist, and then you get Armageddon somewhere in the in the Middle East. And out of all this horror, uh, the Christians survive. The Jewish people have a sort of useful role in because uh, they have to, according to the this astrology, go back to Israel. But their long term future, according to this demented Christian astrology, is absolutely hopeless. That they 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 are doomed to. But the the elect get saved after the great tribulation. And suffering this, there's a series of total nutcases and still going strong, unfortunately, in the United States, who have been very influential in persuading US presidents to talk their language. Indeed, um, George W. Bush uh, referenced them quite a lot, but actually, it's not that much of a surprise. I discovered he had an ancestor somewhere in the mid 19th century who was called, also called. George W. Bush, George Bush, and all, and actually the direct ancestor of two presidents who who, who came up with this kind of nonsense. He, he total anti-Semite. He wanted the Jews to go to Israel, not because he liked the Jews. He didn't, but he wanted them out of America. But they, but uh, and also because that, in order to do that, that, the effect of that, according to the demented thinking which he promoted, uh, was to enable the end times to come that much quicker. So you have this. Muslims have, of course, in that uh, that plan for the world's future, and it, tens of millions of Americans believe it uh, had no role at all, apart from they were often associated with the Antichrist. Then you get the atheists. I think um, uh, you get the and atheists were driven uh, the new atheism. Um, I'm going to read out a few passages. It's they so. Um, from very rather respectable uh, public figures who sort of echo Pope Urban II at the Council of Claremont preaching the uh, First Crusade in, uh, in, in, at, the back, at the end of the 11th century. Uh, but it's the same stuff. And there's a man called Sam Harris. I believe he's still... Uh, let me find, let me find uh, Mr. Sam. Sam Harris. Um, uh the end of faith. Now, I don't, it's important to, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to say about atheists like Sam Harris or his uh, sort of ally, the British public intellectual uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, that... Um, I think they they do dislike all religions. It isn't just Muslims who they dislike. They think that Christianity is a disaster. Uh, but I think that the environment of the time enfranchised them to um, go after Muslims in particular. So look look about this. Uh, we, 
It is, this is Sam Harris, quite a respectable person, coming up with stuff like this. It is time we admitted that we are not at war with terrorism. We are at war with Islam. This is not to say we are at war with all Muslims, but we are absolutely at war with a vision of life that is prescribed to all Muslims in the Quran, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a bit... Any Muslim, who, who all Muslims revere the Quran, see it as the word of God. So he was being intellectually dishonest. It's an attack um, on a community. There were a, there were, and there were a series of moral panics of much the most uh, no, one of the most notable because so many senior politicians joined into it. Was about the building of a alleged building of a mosque. Um, near the site of the Twin Towers, a form of collective hysteria uh, captured the United States in the aftermath of 9-11, and it became almost impossible uh, to be a Muslim, I think, in those circumstances. Or if you did, if you were, you had to keep quiet about it. It's why I really admire certain uh, Muslims who kept their head. Mehdi Hassan, uh, uh, who's a Briton, who now is an American citizen, has been remarkable in that way. But American mainstream television became a sort of hunting ground to excoriate, to intimidate, to mock um, Muslims in general. And uh, this, uh, and it formed the basis, of course, for that awful presidential campaign from President Trump in 2016 and the um, and the ban on Muslims from coming into the United States. It was all nonsense, but it was so damaging. And I do admire Muslims who have stayed there. And of course, the decent Americans who saw through all of this stuff. John Esposito, the professor at Georgetown University is another person I think has spoken, as you have, James, kind of talked sense here and be, be, been a redress, but you've been minority voices. And because you often are in academia, you're sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're put into, they would they say that, wouldn't they, category? You're members of the liberal elite. Right. <laughs> Peter, unfortunately, the clock is ticking. I usually tell people we could go on for another hour, but I'll tell you that we could easily go on for another two hours. Unfortunately, time is running out. However, before I let you go, tell us what you are working on now and what your next project will be. Um, James, I feel I can't leave this project. There are so many things which I have discovered in the course of researching a book. As you know, when you write a book, you, it's, it's an amazing journey, isn't it? And once you've written it, there's all sorts of things you then discover which ought to be in the book. And so I'm not going to leave, yeah. And um, I'm going to go on looking into the um, the think tanks which have um, created this warped view of Islam. I'm going to have a series of articles planned about Muslim charities which have done wonderful work but have been smeared as being somehow. Unhealth, uh, you know, violence when they aren't, and 
I mean, it's becoming more and more difficult to uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to be a Muslim and live in public life, anything like a public life in Britain, and probably right across the West. In France, the same thing is the same attack is going on. But all it is is very simple thing. And actually, this is again why I mentioned my. I want to say this to you. I was very lucky to have a wonderful grandfather, um, war hero. He he was at he was one of the last hours at Dunkirk in 1940, and he was the, on day two uh, of D-Day. And above my desk, when I wrote this book, I went and got the citation for his distinct DSO. Distinguished Service Order. It's a very, and he never talked about it when he was alive. He just said it wasn't for me anyway. It was from the men, and I got hold of it. It's pretty amazing how he was. He was an engineer. He'd build bridges across when British Army is going across Europe. He'd go ahead and build the bridge, and obviously you're building that bridge, aren't you? You're going out in boats under small arms bar. That's what it said. Accurate German small arms bar. But he was a very soft-spoken man. Never talked about any of that. But I, except that one thing he. He, the reason we fought World War Two, was to fight fascism. We were there for the underdog, so that they could live free lives. Whether it was the the Jews who were exterminated under the Nazis or the small nations which were obliterated, we were fighting that war for decency. And I like to think that when I wrote this book. I was honouring my grandfather and what he fought for in World War II. Peter, there's clearly a lot of you in this book and a lot of passion as you go forward. I, for one, certainly look forward to continue reading you. In the meantime, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. All the best and take care. It's a real privilege uh, of, to come on your show, James. I, I'm a, I, I love reading your book about football, by the way, in the Middle East. I learned so much from that because it's a real sports history is such a fascinating subject, and you learn so much through sport about. I read a book about Basil de Oliveira, the black cricketer who was not allowed to play cricket. Well, not allowed to play first-class cricket in the in, in apartheid South Africa, and his amazing journey to right. come to England. Yeah, no, sports and, uh, is he, a phenomenal prism.